Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, hi, and welcome. I am your host, Emigan Awardner, and in my nearly 20-year career as a beauty and health writer, I have interviewed a lot of people, supermodels, entrepreneurs, authors, celebrities, and doctors, and many of these conversations had a real impact on me, and I'd come away feeling inspired, excited, informed, and really empowered, and at the back of my mind, I'd always think, I wish I could just publish the tape so people could really feel that conversation. Well, on this podcast, you get to feel the conversation. I talk with experts, guests, and a few friends who I hope will inspire, inform, and empower you, and maybe also challenge you, whether you're looking for self-help, self-improvement, beauty advice, health insights, business know-how, or just some good old-fashioned life advice and a bit of a laugh. It's all here. Welcome to the show. Dame Jenny Murray is a journalist and broadcaster whose name and voice I'm sure you recognise from BBC Radio 4's Women's Hour, which she presented between 1987 and 2020. She joins me on this episode to talk about her book Fat Cow, Fat Chance, which chronicles her own struggles with weight since childhood, underpinned by an examination into the reasons why we eat, the genetic predispositions to weight gain and obesity, and the hideous and vicious cycle that people, although let's face it, predominantly women, find themselves on. Long-time listeners will know that I've documented my own issues with food and weight on this podcast many times, and what sometimes it can be so difficult to communicate to others is how it's a constant and very private battle one wages within oneself that no one else could see just by looking at you. And so Jenny's honesty and candor about the ups and downs she has been through in her life until age 64 she decided to tackle it once and for all with gastric sleeve surgery is eye-opening, enlightening, and I found really comforting. Another topic Jenny covers in the book and which we discuss in this show is fat shaming and how it is an unpunishable discrimination. Basically, you can get away with it where you can't get away with discriminating about pretty much anything else, which is a very interesting observation and one I was pleased to be able to discuss with her here in more detail. Age 71, Jenny has finally found the balance she was always looking for in the snake oil and fad diet she tried over the years. And goodness, can I relate to that? And in this episode, she shares her story. All the links to Jenny, the book, and everything discussed will be in the show notes, but please join me in welcoming Dame Jenny Murray onto The Emma Gunn Show. Welcome to the podcast, Dame Jenny Murray. How are you? Um, It's a nice sunny day. Um, Not very warm, but Mm. it's okay. As long as it's sunny, I'm okay. (laughs) We've not had the best summer, but there you go. No, there is a bit of a chill in the air. You are a broadcaster and author, and I'm delighted to have you on the podcast to talk about a subject which, honestly, I'm nervous to broach many in many instances because it is such a polarizing topic. But I read your book, Fat Cow, Fat Chance, and just was so delighted to hear such an honest account of what it's like to battle with your weight and how complex emotionally and mentally that is, as well as obviously the physical aspects of that. It's incredibly complicated. You know, you hear so many people saying, oh, just eat less, do a bit more exercise. Um, But it's actually so much more complicated than, oh, she's lazy, she's greedy or she has a lack of moral fibre. No, you know, we have different physical makeup, which influence the way our bodies react 
to food, to exercise. You know, I had two very fat grandmas and I have absolutely no doubt that part of my problem is genetic. Mm. My mother, bless her, didn't have fat. She had lovely slim arms and lovely slim legs and throughout my life would you know I never walked into my mother's house without her saying oh my goodness love you've lost far too much weight you look terribly thin or oh my goodness you look like a baby elephant what what's happened you know you put it all on again because I would go up and down up and down not so much when I was a, a child or even a teenager my real problem started when I went to university, which I think happens to a lot of people because you're not at home with um, your mum feeding you good home cooked stuff. You go off to the canteen, you eat a lot of chips, you know, all of all of that. That's when my problems really started. Although I do think my appetite had been damaged by my mother, who was a wonderful cook. And they'd come through the war, she and, and my grandma, who cooked for a lot for me. And suddenly, uh, you know, I was born in 1950. Suddenly they could get all the things they hadn't been able to get during the war. They mm. could get butter, they could get sugar, they could, they could make wonderful cakes, they could make brilliant puddings. My grandmother made the Yorkshire puddings to die for, you know, they were just incredible. Uh, and they spent all their time really cleaning the house, shopping and cooking. And it, it was the way they showed love was mm -hmm. to give their family beautiful food. So I would sit there uh, with a huge plate of food for lunch. And halfway through, this is when I was very small, halfway through, I'd say, mommy, I've had enough, you know, I'm, I'm full. And she'd say, oh, I spent all morning cooking that for you. You will finish it. And if you don't finish it now, then it'll be there tonight and you can finish it tonight. So I consistently ate beyond my appetite. Mm. And through my life, words have been ringing in my head, which were written by Susie Orbach, who wrote Fat is a Feminist Issue, when she said, you know, the way to control your weight is to listen to your appetite. And when your appetite tells you you've had enough, just stop. And I, I know Susie quite well. And um, a number of times I've said to her, you know, trouble is with your advice about listening to the appetite and then stopping is, it's the one subject on which I appear to be profoundly deaf. I can't <laughs> hear it. So, so there's the genetic thing. There's the being really quite overfed as a child, um, learning to love treacle sponge pudding, which I still dream about, um, not really understanding what happens when you diet. You know, this 95% of people who go on a diet is absolutely true. They put the weight back on and often they put more weight back on because your body's physiology has a little hormone called leptin, which you go on a diet, you lose lots of weight, you've worked really hard, your family is saying, oh, mum, you're looking so much better, you look great, and you can run and you can walk and all of those things that thinner people manage to do. Um, and then this leptin, goes rushing up to your brain and says, whoa, make her eat, make her eat. She's starving. This is really dangerous. She's going to starve. And suddenly you're really, really hungry. And you think, oh, it's all right. I can manage one treacle sponge pudding. That'll be okay. And whoa, you're back putting the weight back on. It's just a cycle that for me, went on and on throughout my life until I was 64. Mm. Mm. I've, I've talked about it on this podcast and I often refer to it as a roller coaster because of the ups and downs. And for me, it was at 41, having breast reduction surgery, thinking, well, I'll have breast reduction surgery and I will look slimmer. 
But what happens when you have breast reduction surgery is you have two perfect body parts and you see the rest of you with new eyes <laughs> and your soul falls out of your body <laughs> and you realize that it's not about a cosmetic fix. It's about, and I got to the point where I just looked in the mirror and I thought, I don't want to be on this roller coaster. Is this really going to be the thing I can't ever in my life get a handle on? And so it, how, did you, how did you get a handle on it? I realized that, well, my first instinct was to do what I'd done previously, which I was really good at, which is dieting and exercise for a sustained period of time, getting great results. And then obviously it cycles back up as for reasons, it's part of the reason you've just explained. And I'm, I was just tired of doing that. Tired, just tired. I didn't want to do the seven days a week. I didn't want to be restricting what I was eating. And I thought, I'm going to look at this differently. And I realized that it wasn't about my diet and my exercise. It was about my normal, how I ate when I wasn't within some sort of framework. And so I, never, I was really good at dieting and exercising. What I was quite poor at was normal, just the day-to-day -day eating. That was when my, my weight would go up because I was eating too much. And so kind of figuring that nugget out and thinking, okay, well, that's what I need to adjust was the thing that really helped me. The problem, of course, is that food is such a pleasure. Mm. You know, I really enjoy food. Mm. I love going to a restaurant with my friends or my family and eating really, really delicious food. My problem was portions. Mm. And that I grew up with. You know, my mother would load the plate with lots and lots of food, far too much for a child. <coughs> and because I was forced to eat it, I, I ate it. And so I would go, I remember my father actually, when um, that sort of minimalist um, eating became very fashionable, when you'd go to a restaurant, there'd be a tiny little piece of this and a tiny little piece of that. With a and chive, dad, balanced. My dad would look at the plate and go, oh, good Lord, you know, what are they trying to feed? A mouse? This is ridiculous. <laughs> um, but I suppose it was only when I really took that drastic step, which, you know, people say that's quite a strong title for your book, Fat Cow, Fat Chance. And I said, well, yeah, uh, I have no fear of using the word fat. It's what I was and to some degree still am. Um, the, the fat cow is what I was called in the mm. street over and over and over. You know, I'd be walking my dogs in the park, uh, looking for a bench to sit on. And some couple of blokes would come back and go, ooh, fat cow, look at that. Ooh, wouldn't go there, would you? Or I'd be sitting in my mini at the lights and some bloke would drive. It was always a bloke who said it. Mm. It was never a woman. Um, again, the fat cow came out. And one of the things I've said about this book is I never, ever, ever again want to hear anybody calling somebody a fat cow. Because, you know, people say, oh, oh, it works. Fat shaming works, you know, make them feel ashamed of being fat and then they'll lose weight. No, James Corden uh, famously in his um, show that he does in America said if fat shaming worked, there would be no fat kids in school because they get shamed. They never get chosen for a team to play games People tease them, shout at them, call them names, and they don't lose weight because fat shaming doesn't work. It just drives you deeper and deeper into the depression, mm -hmm. and the depression often is comforted. We call it comfort food by lovely food. Um, and I've, I've gone there many, many, many times. It um, isn't... It's one of the things in the book um, you say, and it's such a, a good point that I guess just is in, it's in plain sight, isn't it? That fat shaming is the one remaining allowed form of discrimination. 
This occurred to me when, you know, once I really got involved in researching all of this scientifically and made the decision about what I wanted to do to deal with it, um, I went to a conference which was presented by the surgeon who did my operation in the end. Um, and there were lots of people who were metabolic surgeons, we call them in the business, not <laughs> bariatric surgeons. Um, and one young metabolic surgeon stood up, he was Irish, and he there was a whole room full of some thin people, some medium people, some very, very fat people. And he said, you know, when you think about hate crimes, look at look at the list of people who can suffer from a hate crime, their gender, their sexuality, their disability. And he listed all the things that are there in the law. And then he looked at the audience and said, what's missing from that list? And the whole room went, ah, obesity. Obesity is not in the list. It is not considered a hate crime to call somebody a fat cow. Mm. That's wrong. And you broached you broached in the book. It's because there's this perceived idea that it's something that could be changed. And I'm eliminating the word that obviously is uh, would probably be in the mind of the person using fat shaming is easily changed, but it's not easy. Yeah. Oh, all you have to do is eat less and exercise more, but it's not that easy. It's much more complicated. Mm. I thought what was interesting with your story, and it's something I did as well, which was almost reverse engineering, retracing my footsteps. There was something about the problem that I realized I had with eating specifically that made me instinctively look at my childhood to look for where, because I realized it was something that had taken root. And I want, and I figured if I saw the entry point back to the future style like Marty McFly I could go and never plant that seed well that's what I was saying about you know having these two wonderful cooks in my life who suddenly had all the ingredients they could possibly get in the post-war period to make really really delicious food my mother's chocolate cake was to die for it was just amazing um and so I would eat all those kind of things Sweets were treated as a treat because, of course, during the war, they hadn't been able to get sweets. So I would be given a couple of pennies. Uh, yeah, go on, you buy yourself a treat. Um, sugary pop was a treat. Dandelion and burdock. I loved it. We only had it on a Friday with fish and chips. Um, but, you know, these habits that these two women were just trying to express their love by putting wonderful food on the table and then making the point that they weren't really hard at doing all this cooking and baking. And it was my job to eat it, mm. all of it. And so those habits were drummed into me from being tiny, really. And I suspect that is the case with an awful lot of people. I'd, I'd say to parents, for goodness sake, when your child says he or she is full, say, fine, take it away. Don't worry if you're wasting it. Just don't overfeed them. Mm. It's a difficult one, isn't it? Because we all, I was chatting to a friend the other day who we both, I guess, were in our teens in the 90s. And so our mothers were calorie counters. I can still remember vividly what the book looked like in the kitchen that had the pictures of food on with a little tag on saying how many calories there were and everything. And we, we absorb that with, without a shadow of a doubt. Um, I'm interested to talk to you actually about this idea of eat less, move more, which fundamentally at the heart of it is a good tactic. And what I struggle with is looking back and thinking, I don't think I'm a dumb woman. And so I know what eating less would involve, what action it would require. And I also know the same for moving more. Yet it was, and I could talk the talk, health and beauty editor for 20 years, I used to write about it. And yet I couldn't walk the walk. So I could cite all the facts at you, or I could 
tell you the right thing to do. I could tell somebody else the right thing to do, but it was the fact that I wasn't able to apply it to my own life. Did you ever feel it's so obvious? It's just there. This is what I need to do. Yet I I can't implement. That's true. But this business I was talking about with the leptin Mm. and the the way you're, you know, often I used to go to the park. Unfortunately, my my old dog died recently. We're missing him dreadfully. Um, but I had three chihuahuas and uh, Butch was big for a chihuahua. Um, Frida is a bit smaller than he was. And Madge is absolutely diminutive. And I would go to the park with the three of them and people would always come and say, oh, and they're gorgeous. Oh, they're so cute. If I had a five, every time I've been told my dogs are cute, I'd be a multimillionaire. <laughs> um, and, and they'd say, what, what breed are they? I said, oh, they're all chihuahuas. Oh, are they? Well, why is that one so much bigger than that one? And I'd look at them and say, look at you and me. We're from the same species, why am I so much bigger than you are? And they go, oh. And I'd say, it's about your physiology. Mm-hmm. You know, some of us are just bigger than others. And some of us have bodies that function in a different way in relation to food than others. Mm-hmm. It's complicated. <laughs> um, and they go, oh, yeah, okay fine and uh, walk off um but but that's true you know it really is not as simple as eating less and moving more because your body may function in a completely different metabolic way from mine Mm -hmm. and so you have to learn to deal with your own body you can't assume that what you do is going to work for anybody else I had Gillian Michaels on the podcast recently and she said something to me that's really stuck with me because she said it's it's like being born rich or poor. We were talking about basal metabolic rate and she's somebody who can't have a blowout with food because she will gain weight quite easily. And she was a fat kid, which she's documented. So she um, she says that that's those are the cards I have to play. I know that when it comes to excess, I can't really go there because my body will respond in a way. Whereas some, for someone else, it won't be that at all. They'll be able to eat way more than me. And I think understanding that and and when she said it's like being born rich or poor I could really relate to it and think it's a very good analogy actually you know I've got my best friend Sally um she and I've been going out to it's our one big treat that we can go and have a nice dinner together and we can gossip and we can you know we used to work together um we used to go to a restaurant called the Camden Brasserie that did the best chips in London. There's absolutely no doubt about it. Vinegar first, and salt second. We'd, we'd get a huge, great bowl of chips with our steak. She would eat more than I did. And she never put an ounce on, not an ounce. If I just looked at the chips, I put on half the steak. <laughs> There's no question about it. So we have to be understanding of of our different bodies and and never call somebody lazy just because they've got a bit of weight on it's too complicated to be so rude about it Mm. and And you know what I mean I my real change happened when I mean I weighed 24 stone at the age of 64, um, I was walking in the park with my younger son. My family have never fat shamed me, never, ever, not once. But we were sitting down on a bench and my mobility was getting really quite poor. That's how fat I was. And a woman went by on one of those motorized um, vehicles that for disabled people and she had two little dogs who were trotting alongside her with their lead hooked onto the handlebars and she was even bigger than I was I mean she was really really enormous and Charlie said mum you know I'm 
really starting to get worried about you because if you don't do something about your weight, that's going to be you in a year or so's time. And you hate it. You won't want to be like that. And that's what made me really start to research. What can you do about it that actually works? Mm. And that's when I came across um, my surgeon, Francesco Rubino. Um, and I asked if I could go to see him. And he explained exactly how stomach surgery works. And a lot of people would say, oh, if you do that, it's just the easy way out. Or, oh, that's just a bit drastic. Are you really sure you want to go and have 80% of your stomach taken away? And I said, well, you know, if I don't do something really drastic about it, I am going to end up the way Charlie has suggested. And what's most important to me is not really the way I look. I've, you know, I've coped with that for such a long time. It's my health that matters. Mm. It's being able to walk my dogs without wondering when the next bench is going to come along so that I can have a little sit down. Um, and so I, I opted to have the gastric sleeve, which does force you to eat less because your stomach just can't take it. It also readjusts a lot of your hormonal work that's going on inside your body. And I lost half my body weight in less than a year. Um, and I now only eat my food on a small plate so that my portions are kept down. Uh, quite often when I'm eating with my husband and we have completely different portions and I can't always get through the portion that I have been given. And I quite often say, you're still hungry. Do you want to finish this off <laughs> and pass it over to him? And he goes, yeah, fine. And he never puts on any weight. You know, he's just one of those lucky people who don't. Um, but it completely changed my life. But at one point I had to say that what happens if you have the surgery is you, you lose lots of weight quite quickly and then you start to slow down. And then I, I started to think, and I really don't mean to insult Nigel Lawson when I say this. He was one of the successful dieters who went on a drastic diet and lost tons of weight. And because of his age, and you know, I'm not young anymore, um, he got terrible wrinkles and his, and I remember looking in the mirror and thinking, oh my goodness, I don't want to get so thin that my face goes like Nigel Lawson's. And I remember Barbara Cartland saying years ago, you know, as you get older, um, you either sacrifice your face or your body. Um, and I thought, well, why don't I just allow myself some jam on the toast and some butter? and maybe the occasional bun um, so that I keep, I call it plumptitude. Um, <laughs> I, I wanted to retain some of my plumptitude. And I think for 71, I'm not doing too badly, actually. I'm not too wrinkled. Uh, so um, I, I sort of settled at 13, 13 and a half stone. And I said, okay, keep it there because you don't want to look skinny and wrinkly and old. I do remember years ago when I was on one of my weight loss cycles and I'd lost quite a bit of weight, a fellow beauty director was in an airport with her. I don't know whether I'll name her, but um, <laughs> oh, yeah. she, she said, well, because she was quoting someone else as well, very similar to Barbara Cartman. She just looked at me and said, careful, you're going to have to choose between your face and your ass soon. Yeah, well, <laughs> exactly. Um, I wanted, actually, you mentioned something there, which is, is interesting, your motivating factor, Charlie talking about the lady on the mobility vehicle and you uh, not being so concerned with the aesthetic, which is obviously a big part of the conversation around weight, but actually around your health. But that's also a big conversation around weight because there's the healthy at any size movement and I see a lot of content online at the moment sort of suggesting that 
people going to the doctors and being told by a doctor to lose weight is fat shaming. And I don't necessarily know as if I agree with that. I think a doctor giving you advice that they think may improve your quality of life is might it might be a good thing. I think it's a very good thing. Um, I had a, a GP for years and years and years when we lived up in the Peak District. Um, and she was fat. And she never once told me to lose weight. Never. It was just never mentioned. You know, and sometimes I'd go to see her and I was thin and sometimes I'd go to see her and I was fat. Up and down it went. It was really never referred to. And then um, we moved to London um, and I got a new GP and he's quite elderly and quite old fashioned and mm. a very, very, very good doctor. I'm not saying my old one was not a good doctor. She was, but she never referred to my weight. And uh, the first thing Dr. Gibeon said to me when I first went to see him was um, just hop on the scales. So I hopped on the scales, shocked myself, of course, because <laughs> uh, it was a lot. And he said, you know, I really think you need to lose some weight because you're a dead ringer for type two diabetes and you do not want that. Um, and that was one of the factors that really set me on the road to thinking, how can I do this and do it successfully? Mm. And I think it's a doctor's duty to say, you know, because type, uh, type two diabetes costs. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This country an absolute fortune. <laughs> and there's no doubt that it's tied in with diet. No doubt about that at all. Um, and the thing is with the, the surgery, you know, people, when they're talking about people who've had surgery to get thin, um, oh, you know, the, the lazy way out, as I said, is what people say about it. But also, oh, look at the cost. You know, it costs £10,000 to do one of these surgeries. And I say, yeah, but... If you didn't have the surgery and you didn't lose the weight and you had type 2 diabetes, it would cost so much more than £10,000 to look after you with all the care you need with type 2 diabetes. Um, and I, I and the producer at the BBC worked out that these operations pay for themselves completely within mm. three years. So they make perfect sense. And, you know, if you've got cancer, you lose your breast. Why not if you've got fatness that's making you ill? Not rely on the NHS to help you. Mm. Did the aesthetic side of things ever affect you? In the book, you talk about the time you were at uh, a work dinner and somebody next to you made a comment. Oh, yes. 40. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he um I thought you cheeky so and so when he said it. Um it was it was a very posh dinner at um a very posh restaurant in London and I was sitting next to him and we were getting on nicely, we were chatting, we were having fun, and then he turned to me and said, you know, you're really a very, very pretty girl. You would look so much lovelier if you lost weight. Well, just and I just wanted to punch him. <laughs> I didn't punch him, obviously, um, but I would, I would have liked to. I left. I just got up and left. Mm. I, you had such a prominent job. You have a huge profile, and I, when I was tracing back my reasoning as to why I gained and lost weight in the way that I did. Part of the reason I wanted to become a beauty editor 
for magazines is because I thought if I'm a beauty editor of a glossy magazine, then I'll have to be gorgeous and thin, right? Because that's like it's part of the job description. And I thought it would kind of just happen by osmosis. And so I, but actually obviously being in that landscape and not being those things made me internalize and feel less adequate and what have you. Did you ever have, did you, did your, how you looked and how people commented on your, your weight if they did like that gentleman at the dinner, did it ever affect your work in that way? No, I don't think so. Um, I mean, it, of course, it's the great benefits of being on the radio. <laughs> I love the radio. Nobody can see you. Um, and and I totally disapprove of cameras or zooms in radio studios. That's not what radio is about. Radio is about the voice and mm. the listener making their own pictures out of what they're listening to. Um, when when I did television, um, I presented Newsnight for quite some time. Uh, and it didn't affect the way I did the job. It affected the fact that my mother would phone up <laughs> at the end virtually of every programme and would, and I'd say, oh, what do you think of that interview I did, you know, with some top-class politician? And she'd say, oh, I'm sorry, love. Um, I wasn't really listening to what you were saying, but, um, you know, I think you put a bit of weight on this week, I, I think you really need to pay a bit of attention to, to going on a diet. And, um, and you know your eyes are your best feature. Well, your fringe has got a bit long. Um, and, and that red top you had on, that, that wasn't right. You've got too much colour to wear red on. On and on and on she would go. So then when I went to the Today programme, even though I had to get up at four o'clock in the morning, I could go into the studio and not worry that my mother was actually going to see me. She would have to listen to what I was saying because she had no other choice. Um, I always tried to make an effort to dress nicely, you know, not overdress, um, do my hair in the morning before I went in. And, and I don't think I ever presented a radio programme without wearing eye makeup. Um, <laughs> I haven't got eye makeup on this morning because this is, you know, I'm just at home. But it's very unusual for me not to have eye makeup on because I think that was the favour that you did to the people who came in. You know, in those days, gosh, remember those days when interviewees actually used to come into the radio station and were not just sitting <laughs> in that sitting room talking to a computer mm. um and I, I always made an effort to look smart um for those purposes but I never worried about the weight your mother was a very significant sort of element in the weight story and when I read that my heart my heart really broke for you because it's that funny thing isn't it parents don't want to upset their child or do anything to harm their children but something like that, for example, when I was growing up, people might bully me at school. So you'd go home where you're safe. But then if a parent says you need to do some exercise or comments on your weight, then you've just got no escape from the constant criticism. No. Um, I, I, my relationship with my mother was, was complicated because I was an only child and I was a girl. And she had very much wanted and assumed she was having a son when she was pregnant. She was quite surprised when it wasn't David Roberts who came out, but Jennifer Susan. Um, and so we spent an awful lot of time together. And I was absolutely the centre of her attention in every way. How was I doing at school? How much was I reading? Uh, who was I playing with? What was my accent like? You know, she didn't want me to have a broad Yorkshire accent, so she sent me to radication lessons. So there was that kind of obsession with this only child. And she'd had such a terrible time giving birth to me. She didn't want mm. to have any more children and was determined she wouldn't. So she always wanted me to do what she thought was the best. 
you know, I had to be the boy who was going to be successful, who was going to get a good education and go to university. Because when I was a kid, I think girls who had brothers didn't get quite the attention that, that girls would automatically assume they would get now. Um, and so she could be very, very critical, very critical <laughs> mm. or absolutely adoring. You know, it would it would flow from one side to the other. And um, yeah, I, I, I mean, the, the first when I told you I, I, I first really started to have trouble when I was at university and was eating all the wrong things at university um, and went from nine nine and a half, which was my normal weight, to 11. My parents were abroad. My dad was an engineer and did foreign contracts a lot. And my mother would spend half of her time with him and half of her time with me. And they they were coming back from Turkey and they had decided they would drive back and they'd take the boat from Rotterdam to Hull, which is where I was at university, and I would go and meet them at the ferry terminal. So I'm standing there as my parents' car comes through and they drive straight past me. And I'm going, yeah, mom, dad. <laughs> and eventually my dad stops and he jumps out of the car. Oh, love, it's so lovely to see you. Oh. And my mother was sitting in the passenger seat. And I got into the back of the car and she said, good grief, what has happened to you? You look like a baby elephant. That was the first time she used the baby elephant term. And just went on and on and on and on and on about my, my size. Um, and that was the first time I went on what was actually a really dangerous diet. I mean, I yeah. read all the magazine diets, the one that seemed to be the easiest one to follow consisted of boiled eggs and tomatoes. And that's all I ate. I ended up in the, uh, I was actually given some pills by the doctor, um, which made me a little bit crazy. I took them dutifully, ate nothing but uh, boiled eggs and tomatoes. And eventually my supervisor, my, my tutor, who was um, designated to be my, my honorary parent, I suppose, um, had me in his office one day and said, look, Jenny, what's happening? You've lost so much weight. You're, you seem upset quite a lot of the time. Um, your work's not as good as it was when, when you started. What are you taking? And I said, nothing. You know, I don't, I don't do drugs, even though quite a few people did. I didn't. And he said, well, you're taking something. I said, well, only the pills the doctor gave me. And he said, oh, what are they? Let me have a look. So I took them out of my bag, held them out. And he said, oh, my God, they are black bombers. <laughs> I said, they're what? <laughs> They're black bombers, they're amphetamines. No wonder you're going so completely crazy. So I ended up I'm virtually anorexic, you know. I'd gone down to, I think it was six stones in a very short period of time um, and really had to be taught to eat again. And I, I decided the day I was released from there and went home to my mother for the holidays, uh, that I would never diet again. Unfortunately, I didn't stick with it, but I never dieted quite so drastically. What really struck me about that story in the book was that back in the day, so I'm guessing what was that, late 70s? No, late 60s. No, late 60s. Yeah, um, late 60s. yeah uh, access to amphetamines or anything like it would have been via a doctor only, really, or illegal means. Whereas now, somebody, a young woman of a similar age who wants to lose weight, or man, uh, can find something similar on the on high the street internet. or on oh, the on internet. The yeah. Street. Well, you can get things, you can get, yeah, basically the things that you can get caffeine tablets, you can get all sorts of things that essentially suppress your appetite. 
And so you can self-medicate in a way that is horrifying to really think about. Yeah, I mean, what, what happened to me was really, really dangerous. I have to tell you, I, I can eat eggs now and I can eat tomatoes, but I could not eat egg and tomato that were sitting on the same plate. I would just <laughs> feel sick. Uh, it was such a horrible experience. It really was. But you but you did continue. You were, again, you were on the yo-yo of dieting. Yeah. And was what? how did it affect your self-esteem? Did you feel as though being so accomplished in work that not being able to sustain a weight did that was that ever a stick that you used to beat yourself with there there were times I mean there was quite a period when the children after we moved to the Peak District which you know my husband and I are both northerners we had both been to really excellent northern schools grammar schools uh, and we decided that was really what we wanted for our kids we didn't want them to be in London as teenagers uh, and so we moved, we moved up there and I've forgotten what you asked me now. Oh, it's gone out of my head. where was I going? With it this was about uh, using the, not, not being able to maintain a weight as a stick to beat with which to beat yourself with. Oh yeah. Um, so because, so we'd moved up there so the kids could go to Manchester Grammar School. Um, and David worked from home, so he did the main childcare. And I, of course, had to come to London to work on Woman's Hour. And I had a pretty grotty little basement flat in Camden Town. Wuthering Depths. <laughs> Wuthering Depths. I called it Wuthering Depths. It was really not brilliant. Uh, but it meant I was there on my own um, from... Thursday night to, uh, from Sunday night to Thursday lunchtime. And, you know, I had friends, I'd go out to dinner with my friend Sally, as I told you, but an awful lot of time spent alone because I got up very early, went in, did the programme, got back mid-afternoon and then the day would stretch ahead. And I became very depressed and very lazy about what I ate. I would get lots of ready meals from Marks and Spencer's or from Sainsbury's. Uh, I drank far more white wine than I should have done. Um, and I got to such a low at one point. I actually rang the Samaritans. I was really, really depressed. And I spoke for a couple of hours to a charming young man who was really really helpful it was just I needed somebody to talk through it all with when I couldn't really talk about being depressed with my friends I didn't think they would want to know so that was very helpful but that's the only time I really got to rock bottom um, did, did it feel as though the food and depression or your size and depression were somehow intertwined. And I asked that question because it definitely was for me. I could look back at photos and I could tell you based on how I look, where I was with my mental health as well. Yeah, of course they're, they're connected. Mm. But, you know, what do you do when you're feeling depressed? You go and eat another bar of chocolate or drink another glass of wine, mm. or which doesn't help. So now we're living in this age where there's a whole new movement that, is relatively new, certainly didn't exist when I was uh, a teenager and didn't exist when you were a teenager. And that's the body positivity and movement and the body acceptance movement. Do you think they have, um, do you think they're useful and helpful? Do you wish that there had been more of that kind of narrative around when you were younger? I, I think they are useful as long as they don't, over encourage the health side of things because I have no doubt that being as fat as I was was very very bad for my health you know it, we I, I hate people like Kate Moss who say oh nothing tastes as good as skinny feels and all of that sort of thing is really really annoying we're all different you look through the street, you see people of all kinds of different sizes. We can't all look like 
Kate Moss. And actually, I don't think I would really want to look quite as skinny as that. Um, we have to learn to accept that we have, like my dogs, you know, three chihuahuas. One was big, one was not so big, and one was absolutely diminutive. All the same species. And one of them would eat whatever was put in front of him. The other would hmm, pick at it maybe all day long, just a little bit here, a little bit there. Appetites are different. Size is different. Genetics are different. And we just have to learn to accept the way we are. Mm. You know, I have at times in my life gone through absolute nightmares of trying to get clothes that would fit me. Um, and hating shopping because it was so embarrassing going into changing room to try anything on. Uh, all of that has been awful. But I now accept this is this is what I am. This is who I am. And I am not dangerously overweight anymore. Do you and that, that's what I really care about. Yeah. Do you feel as though you're able to get to that place of acceptance because you're at a place of maintenance and because you you as you described earlier you said I I chose this weight because I don't want to lose any more because I don't want to look a certain way has that been a, a place where you've been able to find peace I think being 71 helps <laughs> you know you just look around and think oh what did I worry about you know what was all that fuss about that was just nonsense um my brain is much more important than the size of my waist um and I think I prefer to stick to that one really well funnily enough before I started chatting to you I was in a very active whatsapp group with uh, a bunch of my female friends um all of we're all over the age of 40 and all of them said body positivity is not something you really hear women our age talk about it is a younger woman's game and I wondered if you had any thoughts on that. And their reasoning is because you've got more things to worry about when you're older. You realise what's important. Your priorities are straight and you're not so focused on what you're wearing and what your clothes size is and what your stretch marks look like. Uh, yeah, I don't worry about stretch marks or uh, a little bit of fat around the middle, which I still have, or my chubby cheeks with plumptitude. Um, <laughs> I don't care about any of that I just want to be fit enough to put my dogs on a lead walk out the front door and give them a good walk around the park and be able to do physically all the things I need to do um just don't worry about it just be yourself and if you do become dangerously obese as I did, look at safe and sensible ways of working with your body and not just following some crazy diet like taking amphetamines and eating nothing but eggs and tomatoes. Well, you mention it in the book, but it's something I really related to. It's the snake oil. It's the somebody packages up a way of eating or a diet or a lifestyle in a way that's so shiny and alluring and seductive and you think that's going to be me from now on and it's just bobbing along from one disappointment to the other because they can't be sustained what was the worst apart from the amphetamines obviously during your time of trying things out I know you did the Cambridge soup diet but was there anything that really stands out as I cannot believe I even entertained that I, I believed these people, you know, like Atkins. Oh, yeah, he must know what he's talking about. Uh, never eat a carbohydrate. Whoa, no way. Uh, don't look at sugar. It'll jump up and kill you. <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you can't was the other one that I followed absolutely religiously. And, and then, of course, each time you've done it for, I think I did do come for two years. Uh, and lost a lot of weight and then suddenly started to get ravenously hungry and thinking oh well yeah you can have your treat you can do this you can do that without understanding that it was my hormonal system 
that was telling my body I was starving. Mm. I interviewed Dukan once and even speaking to the man himself, I couldn't get my head around what you had to do. And I thought if the man himself can't convince me, then it's not the diet for me. Well, it was eat as little as possible, basically. <laughs> um, during the research of the book, you do you spoke to a lot of experts, you spoke to surgeons. Was there anything that surprised you that you uncovered any of the stats or data or something that really blew your mind when it came to, I had no idea this was even at play when it came to weight and how our bodies work? I think Giles Yeo uh, and his understanding of the genetics is mm. it was the most interesting because I didn't really believe that genes had such an influence, you know, that you you may have come from a background where people had lived in an atmosphere of great plenty or an atmosphere of starvation. And that would have been handed down how your body responds to too much food, the wrong kind of food, as has happened in some areas when people have turned on to the American diet and ooh, they've all looked not the way called. That those things are handed down. And I must have been somewhere where they'd be, oh, my background must have been people who'd lived in starvation and it was the ones who knew how to retain food and get fat who survived mm. <laughs> that was me so yeah that was gene eating that was charles yo's book he's a geneticist and uh, i think that one gave me most comfort really oh it's not my fault it's uh, it's my inheritance yeah, I I think it can be something that you can give yourself a really hard time about. Why why am I like this and other people don't seem to have these challenges? And there is something, I know there's a department at the University of Cambridge where they're in, I think they've now uncovered something like 40 genetic predispositions. Yeah, that's Giles Yeo's work. Uh, yeah. Oh. He's at Cambridge. Yes. And so it just goes to show how much more there is at play. And he's just written the new book, hasn't he? Cal Why yeah. Calories Don't Count. Yeah. So I know that our time together is drawing to a close, but I wondered whether you, if you could go back and give young Jenny a message to uh, help her maybe not have to navigate some of the highs and lows that you had to with dieting and your weight, what would you go back and say? Uh, listen to your appetite, love. Um, you know, even though your mum is insisting that you eat every single thing that's on the plate, just say, no, I'm full. I've had enough. I don't want any more of your treacle sponge pudding because my tummy is full. And if only I'd done that, I think I would have learned to control my appetite at a very young age because your body knows what it needs. Jenny, it's been a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much. Listeners, the links to Jenny and the book Fat Cow, Fat Chance will be in the show notes, which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. But Dame Jenny Murray, thank you so much for being on the Emma Gunn Show. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to that episode of The Emma Gunn Show. I do hope you enjoyed it. I appreciate your time hugely. If you did enjoy it and you never want to miss an episode, then please do hit the subscribe button wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. It's also where you get the opportunity to leave a five-star review and a rating for how you feel about the show. And I'd be so grateful if you wouldn't mind leaving one. If you want to get in touch with me, email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Or you can DM me on Instagram and Twitter where I am at Emma Guns. If you fancy chatting to me and thousands of other fellow listeners of the podcast then click the link to join the facebook forum the link to join is in the show notes which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode you have to answer a couple of questions but we cannot wait to see you there come over and join the conversation thank you so much for listening i will see you on the next one when you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers 
If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.